Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. This week's topic is... The power of the atom. Because it was requested. That is right. Yep. It was requested. <laughs> it was requested. Also, and then we and then I found a news story that loosely tied in. Well, not loosely. It tied in. Yes. It was the impetus to cover this topic. It helped us get there. Yeah, absolutely. But before we get there. Before we get there. As uh, usual, we have a an update from last time. So I have a bunch of quick little ones. So who sings What is Love? The song What is Love? The song. It is Hathaway. Is that like the full title? What is Love? No, like Hathaway. Yes. So it's like a band or a person? It's a band. Oh, okay. All right, all right. Because I saw Hathaway and I was like, ah, she's not going to know what the first name of this person is. It's like, no, that's the band. Okay. the group name. Uh, Hathaway. What does that even mean? I don't know. I just think of Hideaway. That's sort of what I thought. Yeah, but anyway. Okay. That's look, all that matters. I didn't look into the etymology of Hadaway, but I did look into the etymology of uh, a couple of words we talked about. Oh, yes. The plural so, problem. Yes, the plural problem. So we weren't sure if genius was pluraled as geniuses or genii, genii. Yeah. Um, but it is geniuses. There are some sources that say genii, uh, but that could be an older oh. English thing. There's lots of weird older English things. Yeah, that's true. And then another word that we were wondering about was octopus, about the etymology of octopus. So it is Greek, is a Greek rooted word. Yep. Um, so there's actually precedence for three different endings for this word. Okay. So octopuses works the best for English. If you consider octopus as an English word now, it's octopuses. So when you're speaking English, you say octopuses. Um, octopi was a, what they called it in the early 19th century, which was a Latin ending when it was thought that this word was a Latin word. Okay. Uh, and then if you're talking, you want like the, the classical Greek ending, uh, I found from the Merriam-Webster website that it more or less rhymes appropriately enough, it says, with don't say that please, octopodes. It looks like octopodes. Octopodes. See, I would have, I, like I'm looking at it on the screen right now, I would have said octopodes, but also only just because you have it like right beside like the Greek ending. Yeah. So like knowing that like that P-O-D-E-S would be like podies in like a Greek saying as yeah. opposed to like, again, in the English ending of podes. Yeah. So, so yeah. there you go. Now you know a bit more about octopuses. Or octopi if you're from the early 19th century. <laughs> yes, we don't want to judge. Yeah. Um, and then... A couple more. So there was the origin of the graphic heart. We weren't sure where this, like, the heart design came from. Mm -hmm. So there are two theories. The first one is that it has to do with sylphium, which was a species of giant fennel that had heart-shaped seed pods. Mm. So this graphic heart-shaped seed pod. And uh, sylphium was used as a number of things, like food and medicine, but also as a birth control in ancient Rome and Greece. And it was actually so used, it was cultivated to extinction by the first century A.D., People were really excited about it. Oh, those ancient Romans and Greeks. <laughs> uh, so that's a theory. There's, It's not as substantiated. Other people think it might just be due to artistic renderings of the anatom anatomical heart as described by Galen and Aristotle. 
who described the heart, the, the just human heart, as having three chambers with a small dent in the middle. Uh, and then that design, that so artists read this thing, and then went, ah, that probably looks like this. And then because of the association between the heart and love, that, like, the human heart and love, this design became a symbol for love in humans. Interesting. Yeah. Fun facts. There we go. <laughs> Some graphic design history for you. <laughs> and then, the last two things. Was that oxytocin study done with voles that started people realizing that oxytocin has to do with mm. bonding? Yes. Yep. All right. Yep. Started, uh, <laughs> uh, scientists started noticing this pair connection. Um, it's called pair bonding. And that voles are mostly monogamous. They noticed this in the 70s and then started studying them. And the last thing was what is vasopressin? We mentioned it. We didn't talk about what it is, so I have a definition for you. Again, from Merriam-Webster. I love the dictionary website. Anyway, <laughs> it has fun games on it. Uh, <laughs> it's probably the nerdiest thing I've yeah, said on wow. this podcast. <laughs> uh, so, Vasopressin. Oh, I love the dictionary website's games. Okay, not the Merriam-Webster one, score. but like dictionary.com has some good games. Oh, interesting. Anyway. Uh, so vasopressin is a polypeptide hormone secreted by the posterior lobe of the pituitary gland or obtained synthetically that increases blood pressure and decreases urine flow. Interesting. All right. There now, you go. now we know. Now we know a little bit more. Sarah's fun facts. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So today we're talking about, we, we said the power of the atom at the top, but, uh, so really we're talking about, uh, nuclear energy. Uh, from a couple different lenses. Yes. So a big part of this is we're looking at um, kind of current state uh, nuclear fission and sort of future state nuclear fusion. So we want to talk a little bit about the science of both of those, um, what makes them different, what's make, what makes them similar. Uh, and then we wanted to talk a little bit about like how we came to understand and harness this power through a couple of different historical elements. Yeah. Uh, so we'll start with the what it is, what is nuclear energy and power and all of that, mm -hmm. how it started, a particular project, maybe. Ha -ha. <laughs> I don't know if you have to play so coy with it. It may end up in the description of it, the episode. Yeah, or so. the title. We're not sure. <laughs> but just in case. <laughs> and then uh, we're going to talk about where are we now with, uh, in particular, fusion. Yes. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. we did talk a little bit about kind of like modern technology for fission uh, in terms of like nuclear power plants and stuff like that. So we don't, you can go and listen to the green energy uh, yes. technologies uh, podcast episode because we talk a little bit more about like the construction of a nuclear fission reactor, how it works, the different types of fission reactors that are out there and how they generate power. We'll touch on it again as we talk a little bit because it kind of comes up in the history. But, uh, but we have some other things to focus on this time. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so let's start. Let's just dive right in. All right, Davis. Uh, let's start with some, just some basic overview of the science. What is fission? So what is fission? So we got to think about, go right back to the entomology um, or <laughs> et etymology. <laughs> fission is now a bug. Why are those two words? That's a <laughs> conversation for another time, but like, why are those two words so similar? Maybe it'll Etymology, be entomology, like they're so easy to mix up and they are two completely unrelated subjects. This brings you, uh, you're quite vehement about this. Maybe it'll be in my fun facts next time. It just, I, I don't know. I just, it's just one of those things. It's, I'm, just, I'm just curious. And I'm, I'm sure yeah. it has to do with a bunch of different things. It I'm probably sure. has to do with the 
etymology of both words. Well, literally, it <laughs> would. Um, anyway, what's fission, What's Davis? fission? So the reason I bring up etymology is because it fission, you know, our understanding of, like, what fission is, if you ever forget the difference between fission and fusion or, like, what is fission, remember, like, you think about, like, other words that have similar roots as fission, like fissure, like fissure. I don't know. Some Sometimes people pronounce that word very differently. Fissure. Yeah. Yeah. Like a big, like, crack in the ground. A big crack in the ground, right? It's two <laughs> things separating from ah. each other. So that's one of the tricks that I always used to remember fission v. fusion. Also, well, fusion's an easy one to remember, right? You're fusing, fusing two yeah. things together. Um, my head tried to make or it multiple things together. When you were like, other words like fission, and my head went fish, and I was like, that's not what he's going to say. No, no, no. <laughs> With that kind of the F-I-S-S, and like yeah. fissure is the big one that like most people would think of. I like um, it. I don't know if I can think of too many others, just fissure is always the one that comes to, my, that to mind. Um, so yeah, so fi fission, like fissure, is literally like the splitting of an object, right? To um, Just means to split something in half. Or multiple parts. So when we talk about nuclear fission, we are talking about the literal splitting of the atom. So you often hear that that term thrown around a lot, especially, you know, we'll talk about this a bit later when it comes to like nuclear weaponry, um, that they split the atom and all this crazy stuff happened. And basically what fission involves is taking a particular, usually a uh, heavyweight atomic element. So something like, you know, uranium is a really common one. Plutonium is another common one that comes up. These are very heavy elements. A single atom of it weighs a lot more than like a single atom of carbon. They're big. They're big. They've got lots of neutrons and protons in their nucleus. And when you supply them with more neutrons generally, in a particular type of reaction with a particular yield, they are going to become really unstable isotopes and then they're going to break apart. In the breaking of that, there's going to be some mass that is lost as energy, right? Energy can be, neither be created nor destroyed. Same with mass, conservation of mass. Uh, and it took a long time to figure all this out. We'll talk about that a bit more, but really at its core, fission is the breaking of the atom and then using that energy that is released either as like a neutron or other um, radioactive particles like alpha particles, beta particles, things like that, electromagnetic waves, and capturing that energy to generate power. That's sort of nuclear fission for power generation. Um, but it's really just the splitting of the atom and using the, the consequences of that splitting to drive other work, whether that be, as we'll talk about weaponry, or as we have talked about uh, energy a little bit. That's like broad strokes, the simplest how it works. Should I should I go a little deeper, maybe? Um, I, I think that kind of covers what fission is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What fission is. Yeah, we've kind of talked about it a little bit before in terms of how like it works in a nuclear reactor and stuff yeah. like that, how you can control the reaction yeah. and you stuff like that. You make water hot, it turns into steam, and it turns a turbine. Well, that, that part of it, but also just sort of like how you use, you know, certain reactors use deuterium, which we'll talk about right. a lot today, um, which is an isotope of water that prevent, like that absorbs more or is less likely to absorb neutrons. So you use these different combinations of uh, different, you know, waters essentially to control how many neutrons come out from each split so that you keep this reaction from going what they call like supercritical. Right. So you it keep bad. it under control. That's what a meltdown is, right? Yeah. When something goes completely out of control uh, or when a nuclear reaction goes completely out of control. Contrast this all with fusion. Fusing stuff. Fusing stuff together. Now, this is the process that drives stars. That's commonly how we think about it. Right. So um, at the beginning, there was nothing. And then the universe <laughs> happened. Uh, and the first thing, one of the first things that formed af in the, you know, femtoseconds after the Big Bang or whatever was the hydrogen atom. 
you know, one proton and, you know, sometimes one neutron, that's deuterium and stuff like that. Yeah. But the simplest atom was like the first thing that formed. And then there were big globs of this stuff in space and gravity started, the force of gravity started to pull them all together. And then basically, if you, you think about, you know, vacuum of space, there's nothing around you, but gravity is attracting all these molecules together, all these atoms together. They're getting compressed closer and closer and closer and closer together. It's getting hotter. There's greater pressure. Now there's like billions and billions upon trillions of them all kind of coalesced in the same space. And eventually there's so much pressure. There's so much energy being kind of like forced into these atoms that they start to like fuse together into bigger atoms. And that's how we got helium. Yeah. It's and the same as like, if you, people may not be as familiar with that, but if you think about like diamonds and you think about like diamonds are formed under pressure, right? We always hear that, that saying, mm -hmm. that idea. So that's, it's the same process. Diamonds are formed when you have carbon and it gets crushed under like layers of earth. And like many, many, many layers of earth and it gets really hot down there because you're getting closer to the mantle and all of that stuff. And so it gets like formed and forced into a new configuration because diamonds are still carbon. Uh, similar type process, but here it's getting so hot and there's so much pressure that you're going from hydrogen and it's fusing into helium. That's actually a, a perfect analogy for Thank it. Thank you. <laughs> because so like if you think about, right, um, diamonds really started as graphene usually. Uh, which is what, or like graphite, which is in your pencil. Graphene pencil. is like, graphene is a single layer of graphite. Um, there's a lot of complex chemistry behind it. Well, not even really that complex. It's mostly <laughs> geometry. Um, but basically graphite is just a lot of these graphene layers like stacked up on each other. That's why pencils work. Because essentially the layers, they don't, um, so to get really technical about it. About it's, pencils. It's sp2 carbon, which means that it's um, basically, so carbon is special because it forms tetrahedral bonds. So you think about like your high school geometry class and you've got tetrahedrons and stuff like that. Um, so that's sort of the shape that like a carbon atom bonds tetrahedron in. Tetrahedron meaning like square. No, no, no. Tetrahedron meaning like a triangle based pyramid. Because that would be like, because you've got your square based pyramids and your triangle based pyramids. Basically, you think about carbon atom, it can join four it can it has four bonds that it can form right okay so yeah. a triangular pyramid and uh, yes exactly okay. and okay. rather than rather than being like a cross like flat 90 degrees to each of them yeah, because it's of three-dimensional exactly because right. of the nature of the carbon atom it bonds at like 109.5 degrees right. between each bond length. so it's like taking a uh, an equilateral triangle and you put it flat on the ground mm. and then you go up from the center the same distance so you have like an equilateral triangle up from each of the sides well yeah so if right? you think about it if you had a carbon <laughs> atom at the center of that object yeah and it formed four it formed four bonds to other carbon atoms yeah. which is what kind of what it does this is more like in diamond this is sp3 we're getting a little ahead of myself right <laughs> the carbon atom would be like in the middle of your square pyramid and then there would be a carbon atom at each of the points on that square on that sorry triangular, triangular pyramid, pyramid yeah. right so that the vertices on that triangular pyramid would be other carbon atoms with a carbon atom in the center and so there's a lot of like build up of concepts in chemistry to start to understand uh, particularly in organic well actually in both organic and inorganic chemistry to understand geometries because it's really yeah. important um and basically like the geometry of carbon is what drives like all life it's like why life. life can kind of exist um, the way it does, you know, we've postulated other types of, you know, life forms, but obviously we've never seen them. In Star Trek, there's an asbestos creature. But like, an as <laughs> but asbestos is just like a chain of uh, carbon molecules, isn't it? 
I don't know. I'd have to double check that. There's also silicone. Yeah, That's silicone. Silicone is the one that comes up all the time. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're just always remember silicon, silicone. There was those are different things. So whoops. But you, yeah. The, chemist, but, <laughs> the chemists are gonna get mad at me. It's really important. I believe that you. that letter E <laughs> does a lot of heavy lifting. It does. Um, but anyway, so yeah, so sp two carbon means that it's. Uh, only forming bonds in like the one plane. So basically oh. graphene is like sheets. Okay. Um, and so graphite is just the stack of these sheets. So the sheets don't really have any bonds between them. They're free to slide over each other essentially. Oh. So that's why like when you draw, when you write with a pencil, it's essentially layers of graphene that you're getting, layers of graphite that are being left behind. Graphene as a material has a ton of really, really cool applications where they use, you actually can use like scotch tape to you put it on a piece of graphite, you pull the scotch tape off, it pulls a single molecular layer of graphene and a, gra a sheet of graphene has the, um, I think it's, I can't remember the force you would call it. I don't know if it's tensile strength because I think tensile is twisting, but it has like the shear strength where if you had a sheet of graphene, you could put a pencil um, like lead side down, like point down and with an elephant standing on the eraser and it wouldn't break through the graphene. Whoa. Yeah, so it's this super cool material. It's like the surface tension of water, but way more. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's all these like really cool applications, right, for graphene and stuff like that. And this is kind of where like carbon nanotubes come in and all this crazy stuff. But basically what you're doing when you convert graphene into a diamond is you are compressing all those layers of graphite down so much that it forces bonds to form. Like it gives, it just gives the molecule the crystal structure enough energy to start forming bonds in that third dimension. Yeah, it's basically saying be friends. Exactly. Will be friends now. And you and then you create a diamond, right, of a different structure. And in fact, mm -hmm. diamonds are not actually the lowest energy form of carbon. Graphite is. So all diamonds will technically over, you know, we're talking about now on like universal timescales, but eventually we'll turn back into graphite. Oh. They're actually going to all break down. So diamonds are not forever. Take that diamond industry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But, uh, back to space. Yeah. So sorry. The reason I got so kind of deep dived into that was because like it is a really good analogy for like what fusion is. Um, on like a like on a lower energy scale because that's essentially what fusion in a star is doing is you're forcing these atoms so close together that eventually they're just going to like share protons um when and, two becomes one yeah now <laughs> the process of two of hydrogen atoms fusing into helium is a little bit more complicated than like two hydrogens come together and a helium is formed yeah. it's actually a uh chain reaction so um used to know the i used to know the the um we used to call it like atomic accounting because like you you basically <laughs> like name for it. well yeah and you basically like you write out the subatomic particles mm -hmm. on the atom right so and then it's like okay well this process happens so like one subatomic particle from this other hydrogen will attach to the first hydrogen and then that will cause a reaction where it'll like kick something else out which will you know and then another um, particle will hit it and then it'll do this so it takes four hydrogen atoms to form a helium atom oh. then this process continues so this is called stellar nucleosynthesis cool name yeah and this is basically the process by which stars create all of the elements in the universe so typically a, a, a star will create up to i believe it's iron uh, in its life cycle, like only the most massive stars will do that. But then, and then in the super, in a supernova, more elements will be created. And then there's some confusion, like, um, you know, it's one of those kind of grand mysteries of the universe kind of thing. But then there's other, you know, the other heavy elements are sort of formed by like these similar types of reactions and stuff like that. Very cool. Yeah, it's really neat. 
So, uh, and again, in a star, this is mostly just driven by like the force of gravity that creates this immense pressure and heat. And again, you have to think about like, I mean, um, I think a lot of people are pretty familiar with like the scale of a star versus a planet kind of thing. And then our sun even being like a really small star, but you just, you have to think about like, you know, an incountable number like it's not even worth saying like trillions upon trillions because it's like even an order of magnitude more than that but like all of these individual atoms like coming together and the weight and the pressure of that would be immense right because it's something like um hydrogen atom the atomic mass is 1.008 grams per mole a mole is 6.02 times 10 to the 23 atoms so you're talking about like that many atoms would be a mole of hydrogen, but that would be one gram. (laughs) So think about like, you know, just this, like, I don't even know if they have a quantity for like what the weight of the sun would be based on how much hydrogen helium is in it and stuff like that. But yeah, it's very crazy. So you got to think on these like massive scales. So to make fusion happen, you need a lot of pressure and heat. Yes. A lot of energy, right. To force two things to come together. And this is sort of why, like, and as we'll get into it, right. Like why fission was so much easier to achieve. And then basically since fission was achieved, you know, we're still like 80 years into research into fusion kind of from like uh, the end of world war two and like nuclear research following that. And then going into fusion, like we are still probably a decade plus away from actual sustainable fusion as a as an energy source because it's just like it it was much easier to take naturally occurring elements that are in the earth's crust that in certain conditions will split and are actually always naturally decaying this way and versus taking two of the simple building blocks of the universe and smashing them together and forcing them with the power of a star essentially into a new element and then harnessing that energy. And we'll talk about kind of how that's proposed to work. It's always easier to break something than make something, right? Exactly. Exactly. It's a really good point, right? It is easier to uh, much more um, easier to dig a hole than to, to, than to build something up, to build a pyramid. Right. Um, So that's kind of like how fusion works in a star. And just to talk about it a little bit, right, that this is what we're trying to do on Earth right now is to replicate this process by using some different means to generate that basically activation energy to force fusion to start happening. And then we'll generate energy by it. But we'll talk a little bit about how we are planning to use fusion to generate energy a little bit later. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so that was the what is it? Oh, yes. One, one other thing I think Ooh. is worth maybe maybe bringing up now at kind of the top rather than going into it later is um because this is one that definitely came up in another podcast we were talking about i think we're talking about like dynamite or something i don't remember um earthquakes maybe yeah that's right and we're talking about like mega joules and gigajoules of energy (laughs) and i know at the time we like couldn't quite remember like what a joule was and stuff like Like, we knew a joule was a unit of energy it's the whole thing so joule is what they call a derived SI unit, which is like systemic international. It's the standard standard um, units uh, that are used. So these like kilograms, uh, liters, things like that, meters, all that like kind of stuff. Metric system stuff. It's but that's the thing. So the SI units are not only metric system oh, okay. units. There's a num. It's just the conventionally accepted like standard units. Okay. And then pretty much everything else is derived from those. So they're really important scientific units, like a joule, that have um, like you know. As a scientist, you could just say, well, this is one joule. 
and like that's enough but there's there's a science that underpins what a joule is that's based off of si units okay. right rather than saying like oh it's this many like kilograms times meters to the power of two times two to the power of two whatever kind of thing <laughs> I, and I realized I wrote it wrong. I wrote an extra two in it, which is why I'm oh. confused. But basically what it means is that a joule is a unit of energy and it's built out of the SI units, kilograms, meters, and seconds. Okay. So it's, it's kilograms per meters squared per seconds squared. Or sorry, times, so kilograms times meters squared times seconds squared, right? It's very difficult. Uh, seconds to the negative two, actually. So it's this very... Complicated proof that essentially like proves what a joule is. What that means in like real terms is that <laughs> a joule is the amount of work done when a force of one newton, again, another derived unit, which is a kilogram, which is kilograms per meter, displaces a body through a distance of one meter in the direction of the force that's applied. Basically, it's just amount, an amount of work. It can also be described as the energy that is dissipated as heat, when an electric current of one ampere, which is the unit of an amp, um, passes through the resistance of one ohm for one second. This is also what we call a watt second. Huh. Yeah. So a watt is a measure of electronic, of electric work. And that's um, like, I think that's just like, yeah, ampere um, per ohms or something. It's, yeah, it's current, current to the resistance and then per second. Yeah. Okay. So it's basically just a physical and temporal measurement of energy. So both in the sense of how much force or energy and how long. Okay. Yeah. So I just wanted to cover that right at the top because like we'll throw probably some joule figures around. So it helps if like you understand that just a joule is a special unit of energy. I don't know. There's absolutely one of those things like there's so many questions out there. You know, like the little kids like, but why, but why, but why? Mm -hmm. And like the more into the science you get, like the harder that question gets to answer. This is absolutely one of those. It's like, it's a joule. What's a joule? And you're like, okay. Unit of, unit of energy. Mm -hmm. like, but what's... And you're like, okay. All right. But this is the same thing where... This is actually, I think... It's funny because this is one of those things that, yeah, you're right. Like, in your early... Like, in my early undergrad, this is one of those things you're just, like, scratching your head. It's like, well, why does it matter? And then you get a little bit further. And, like, it's important to know what the joule's component component, component elements. elements are yeah. because it allows you to do certain types of math, right? Because oh, yeah. Because you, you can basically convert, like... Well, if I know a joule is a kilograms times meters squared over seconds squared, then I can, if I have something that's measured in seconds, I can multiply that by the number of joules and that will tell me like how many newtons or whatever, right? Like yeah, you can start so playing around with the units. Exactly. Yeah. It is algebra. Um, you can explain the entire universe with math and it's really yeah. cool. And again, it, and then this, it's really interesting because there's like, you can prove things like physical properties without ever experimenting using like more and more and more sophisticated breakdowns of this type of mathematics. And so there is like a multi-page proof that breaks down like all the mathematics that underpin like why a joule is this combination of units, SI units. And then you can just build up all sorts of units from the SI units. It makes sense because yeah. just saying energy, like we all have an idea of what energy means to us, but it doesn't, if you're like, no, 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 but what is energy? Yeah. It makes sense that it has this complicated thing of like, well, it includes weight, it includes like a distance, it includes time. Exactly. Because energy is a weird concept. It's like a calorie, right? Yeah. We throw that word around all the time. Calorie is the amount of energy that's required to heat one gram of water one degree. Yeah. I think it's one gram, it might be one cup or whatever, one I liter. Think it's a gram. 
one liter. I don't remember. See, this is the this is the <laughs> thing, right? We don't even remember, right? Yeah. But you know that, like, but we talk about calories all the time. But like, yeah. again, like, what is a calorie in like the very strictest of terms, right? Like, if you know, if this bowl of chips is two hundred calories, what is what is that related to? You know, the liter of gasoline in my car with yeah. the efficiency of my you know internal combustion engine, right? So <laughs> this is sort of the thing, right? Like, if you want to compare all these different things, like you have to have this underpinned logic, the proof that kind of underlies everything. Way off topic. This is like. I wanted to cover this just because I knew that we had like glazed over this in a different podcast. And it's a really fascinating part of what makes all of this science work. Very cool. Excellent. But Davis. Yes. How did all of this science start? How did this come about? Well, who started it? It begins with the ancients. Ah, uh, as the, most things in the past. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we have known the, the, the atom has been postulated for for hundreds of years. Oh. I, I I shied away from using the word thousands, but thousands is probably appropriate as well. So the word atom comes from a Greek word, atom, means indivisible, Okay. right? Uh, I'm sure it's spelled slightly differently. But so the Greek, so a lot of Greek philosophers describe the basic idea that they believe that all matter in the universe was made up of indivisible atoms, which they described as spheres of matter, and that they thought that there was an endless type and number of these spheres. Mm -hmm. The reason that this came about was because, like, as, you know, as an early scientist, as an observer, you could see that you could have a whole object, right? So you think about um, any whole object, like a piece of a rock, right? To, to your naked eye, as an observation, that looks like a single piece, right? But if it was, if a rock was its own, you know, if that was its smallest unit, then you wouldn't be able to split that rock in half. Yeah. But your observation tells you different, that you can split this rock. And then you can split the rock that you split. And you can continue to do that, right? Till you get to the point where you can have, you know, small grains of flour or sand. And you can continue to make those smaller and finer. Yeah. So that's where this idea of, well, there has to be something that is so small as to be incomprehensible to us that is indivisible. indivisible. Yeah. Because otherwise things in the universe could not be divided. So that's sort of where this idea comes from. Really, really early on observations. It would take, you know, again, it would take thousands of years into modern civilization for us to really start to describe and look at what the atom is. And to the point where even to this day still, we're working on getting better and better resolution of the atom, right? And being able to quote unquote, see the atom with really, really advanced microscopy. I mean, even the idea of like the atom coming from the word indivisible. Yeah. Like we learned that that wasn't true. <laughs> exactly. And, and that opens up this whole other realm, right? And like that was a big thing about um, quantum physics was that yeah. we started to realize the atom was made up of certain things, but that it didn't make sense for the atom to be made of certain things because it flew in the face of the physics that we'd come to like know and understand was like inalienable from, you know, the natural state, like, you know, the laws of physics that Newton described, but then realizing that there's actually a different su set of physics that underpin things at that scale that allow all of this to happen. So it's like, this whole thing is incredibly important to our understanding of basically the entire universe. Um, so uh, there's a number of, you know, philosophers and people along the road to this point that are important to describing the atom, you know, various details of it, but where things really start to kind of take off is around uh, the 1800s. And so Dalton, uh, and I do know his first name, and it's just escaping me right now. It's R something. Um, 
Sarah's looking it up right now. I'll hear the clicky clack, clack, clack of my clack, little clack. keyboard. John Dalton. It was John okay, Dalton. I don't know why I started with an R. But anyway. John um, Dalton FRS. Oh, well, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so anyway, so 1803. Dalton describes an atomic model. He again proposes that the atom is the smallest and indivisible particle of matter. Sometimes this is called the billiard ball model. So this is really just a formalization of what like the ancients were sort of describing. Okay, just so, a bunch of different spheres. Exactly. So okay. he described them as small indivisible balls. A, the big change for with the Dalton's theory or model, um, model is more appropriate, is that he described that balls of the identical element would be identical to each other. So this okay. is the early underpinnings of what an element is, okay. right? So this idea of that, the atom that is carbon, you know, 10 trillion light years away on the other end of the universe, that a, a carbon atom on that end of the universe is, is exactly the same, right? And, and always the same. And is always the same. Obviously there's some caveats to this in our current understanding with isotopes and things like that but again the the point still stands that like they are still the same and an isotope of of carbon here on earth like carbon 13 which is really important to certain science applications is the same on the other end of the universe what's that the astrophysics quote we are all stardust yeah exactly yeah yeah and that again comes from this idea of, as we were talking about before with stellar um nuclear synthesis or Atomic synthesis? I, I forgot my own word. So that was kind of this big, the big change in H3. It would take another hundred years for things to really pick up again. So in 1909, Rutherford, who's very famous. Classic. Yeah, classic scientist, famous for the gold slit experiment. Um, he, the, or, uh, or gold foil experiment, depending how you want to call it. Um, that was, in 1909, he discovered the proton through this experiment. Obviously there's a number of, like, it's not like 1909 he came up with the idea and he did this experiment. It yeah. was like, obviously there's a ton of research leading up to this where we were postulating the existence of the proton and the subatomic particles. And basically what he did was he had this gold foil. He was bombarding it with alpha particles, just a basic type of, basically like a neutrino. It's a type of electromagnetic wave type of radiation. And he was able to like pick up these on like photoplates on the other side. And he was able to see that most of them penetrate through, right? Which is, again, you know, we know that the atom is actually mostly empty space. So most of the neutrinos, which is, or most of the alpha particles, which are smaller than an individual atom, were able to pass through. They're not hitting anything. But then they noticed that a few of these particles would be scattered and some would deflect directly back to where he was emitting them from. And so this showed that, um, that there were positively charged particles in the nucleus because an alpha particle is has a positive charge I'm pretty sure positive point charge um so and again it was just showing that they were they were hitting something so this is also a big breakthrough towards like that the nucleus existed is this the, so it looked like it was hitting something where he couldn't see anything like where there was nothing i i think at the point where it was like i can't remember exactly what it was but like the theory being that like um i think the theory at the time was that like the atom like everything would pass through it so sorry mm -hmm. <laughs> he was shooting it at like a solid plate so with this so he had a gold piece of gold foil right the gold foil did have some slits in it okay and then he was firing this big beam of alpha particles at it you expect 
that the only things to come through will be the slits, yes. right? Yeah. But it turns out that most of the alpha particles are actually going through. Oh, okay. So right? they can just go right through the gold. Exactly, because they're smaller than the diameter of the individual gold atoms right, so that they make slip up. Right through. They slip right through, which was again a pretty big experimental discovery. Yeah. But then on top of that, some of them were hitting something in the gold and being scattered in different directions, and some of them were being fired straight back. Okay. And so this showed that there some there was something at the center of the atom that was preventing particles from coming through and it was a positively charged particle and it was the proton that had been sort of it there it had been postulated that there was something there and then it was this is where he gets the name like proton from because he knew it was positively charged and i think it comes from protos being like first and things like that okay um there's a lot more like you know you could do you could it's do a, a whole <laughs> unit on this singular experiment realistically yeah um so then in 1932, a scientist by the name of Chadwick adds the discovery of neutrons to the core of the atom. I don't quite remember how he did that, but it's not really super important. Yeah. Um, so the neutral one. Exactly. And it's important, um, you know, in hydrogen, there's no neutron, but it becomes really important in uh, larger elements because neutrons create what's called a strong attraction force that allows... Um, the protons, right? So you can't have that many positive point charges altogether, right? It's just like the, the gold experiment, right? The reason yeah. that some of those particles were bouncing off was because they were hitting, it was a positive thing coming too close to another positive thing and getting like pushed away. Like if you put magnets of the same type near each mm -hmm. other, like the positive and positives, and they get pushed away. So yeah, if you try to, if you're like, oh, well, this one has six protons and there's got to be something else in there forcing or making the protons like stay together. Well, exactly. And it was just like, we knew like, we knew that at a certain point it started to fall apart where like we, yeah, yeah. Like just observably, we knew that two positive charges wouldn't want to be next to each other. Yeah. So when you are still applying, you know, regular physics, yeah. classic <laughs> physics to this model, you started thinking, well, okay, like you, you can't have that many positive charges together. So you think that it's probably something negative, but it's not. It turns out it's, and this is where the quantum physics part of it comes into, but the neutrons create essentially what's a strong attraction force between all of the parts of, uh, all of between the nucleus essentially and allows the nucleus to stay together um and so again this is just more important for these like larger elements than basically any element larger than hydrogen yeah right so most of them yeah exactly <laughs> uh so basically this is our building up of the understanding of what what the atom is then we get, of course, to the infamous one. We get to Bohr. Niels Bohr. So Bohr describes his model of the atom based off of the planetary model. So this is why, you know, we get the word like orbital and atomic shells and stuff like that. Because he basically described it as like, you know, the nucleus at the center and all of the planets or the electrons orbit around it. This is that Bohr-Rutherford model you might have been yes. taught in school. Yes, exactly. So. And now the Bohr-Rutherford model is really powerful and it was super critical to our understanding of the atom and to sort of springboarding us into the quantum model and stuff like that. However, the Bohr model experimentally breaks down after hydrogen. Yeah, I, uh, I remember when I learned like the Bohr-Rutherford, I think it was like grade nine or 10. And I was like, cool, I like this, I get this, I'm with you. And then I got to, I think it was first year they started teaching that they were like, oh, no, no. Uh, the thing you learned in high school, we lied. It's not that. It's actually electron clouds. They're just, they're in these areas and it could be. And I remember feeling so betrayed by the school system. Mm. <laughs> it was one of my first times that I was like, oh, you lied to me. Yeah. This, uh. is, this is honestly, this is a huge pet peeve of mine. I could go on this topic for hours. <laughs> um, my big thing about it is that like, 
I the Bohr model plays an important role because it it really does it's the best way to start to understand what the electrons are doing, right? Yeah, it's and, a good first step. Exactly. But my big thing is that you're 100% right. You know, grade 11, you're taught this all this history of the atom, literally the timeline I'm going through right now, and you're told, well, this is, you know, you're told, oh, well, we use like the, yeah, we know that there's like the quantum model with the clouds of electrons, but we use the Bohr model. And I remember even one of the units I had to do was like draw out the Bohr, you know, Bohr representation of well, all yeah, these different atoms. Oh, yeah, I remember atoms. doing that so much. And it's sort of, but it does help you to start to understand that like what an, what a valence electron is yeah. and how many electrons go into each of the orbitals because like hydrogen and helium, they're a special case. They only have two electrons. Like that first yeah. shell can only be filled with two electrons, like at maximum. And then it goes into the next shell, which, and then each one after that is filled with eight. And that's sort of not super strictly true, but, um, and then, but yeah, and then my big thing about it though, is that like, there's no reason why you have to pretend like the Bohr model is the end all be all. You can sort of say, it's like, we start with the Bohr model because it's the easiest way to start to understand like valence electrons and bonding and stuff like that without getting into electronic configuration, which involves the specific orbitals where the electrons are going to be orbiting in based off of their their spin polarity and like the way that orbitals are filled and all these energy requirements and I, it's very I'm, complicated i'm with you it's i think it's a good way to start but it should not be sold as the truth <laughs> it should be sold yeah. as an idea to help you and then move on from there well and again because you're setting you set people up to to fail essentially because or you to be mad at the system well and then because yeah then you're then they teach you this new thing and you go well like that's not what i said about learning or memorizing or really ingraining into my brain and now i have to unlearn what i know to learn what you're trying to tell me and what else do i know that's not real yeah it was but, a real moment for me yeah <laughs> i don't this, have trust in authority <laughs> this is this is like this is one of those tricky things though too, right? Cause like, so just as an aside, like I tutor a lot of grade six math right now. And sometimes it's hard cause you like, you sit there with like your 20 whatever years of doing the type of math that they're doing. And it's all because in grade six, especially it's all super foundational stuff. Yeah. Right. Um, and you can just do some of this stuff in the back of your brain. Right. And like you've, but like you've got 20 plus years of practice on some of these kids. <laughs> and so you sort of sit there, you're like, well, why aren't you getting this? And you have to really remind yourself that it's like, okay, well you haven't, you don't know that like, oh, well like multiplying by a fraction is the same as just dividing by the denominator. Yeah. Right. Like, or that if you're, um, multiplying two numbers and then dividing by two, you could just divide both of those numbers separately and then multiply them together, right? Like there's so many like weird roundabout things you can do with math that really, I think, benefits people that think can think very non-linearly. But it's really difficult when you're teaching a grade six student that's never thought anything but linearly. And they just, that, that's the skill that they're developing, right? Yeah. So you sit there and you're sort of like, well, why can't you figure out what two numbers multiplied together equal four when they have to be the same number? And you, <laughs> yeah. and you work on that for like 10 minutes with a student. You're like, it's two. It's two, goddammit. But... I digress. So, but this is like, this is sort of one of these like education things that's really weird. Doesn't matter. Bohr betrayed us all. Um, <laughs> Bohr didn't betray us all. No. The teachers after Bohr betrayed yeah. us all. <laughs> so the Bohr model is actually works really, really well to describe one element and that's hydrogen. It's an important one. But again, it really helped us start to understand how the atom was constructed. And this is our most complete picture of the atom, our understanding, our model of the atom to that point in history. Yeah. Then in 1926, we're starting to get more into like the modern age, the quantum model is brought forth and it redefines the shells as these specific types of orbitals. 
So rather than these concentric circles that are building up around the outside of the atom, right? Because we started to realize that like with the transition metal elements, there's some weird stuff going on yeah. there. Um, and they're not truly valence electrons and all these, cause they're not available to bonding and they give all of those elements, very special uh, characteristics. And that's why there's so many different like oxidation states of the transition metal elements and all this sorts of stuff. So it's really, it starts to just, um, so we just sort of advanced our understanding to knowing that like, the nucleus at the center and then these clouds of electrons that will exist in particular orbital shells um, that have certain types of shapes and again you could go into this whole thing but uh yeah they're, they're not rings they're going around the nucleus but not in rings yeah one of the, the s the s orbital which is uh the the, the most basic one that's the number one that's uh hydrogen and helium start with that that fits two electrons that one's a sphere ah. then you get into the p orbitals uh, which are mostly described by, because there are a couple layers of S orbital. That's kind of your rare earth elements and are your alkali, alkali earth. Oh, and this is all yeah. the like middle of the table, right? No, no, no. That's all far left, like lithium and stuff like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. The, the alkalis, um, the really reactive. We, we got to do one on the periodic table. Yeah. Then. yeah. And then <laughs> on the other side, you've got, you know, then you get your P orbitals. They look like little bow ties. They're in three different directions. Oh. There's one that's like on the X coordinate. Y coordinate, Z coordinate. Oh. Then you get into the D orbitals, which are um, like two bow ties stacked up against each other, like a little cross. Like a bow tie X? Yeah, like a bow tie X. And there again, there's several different orientations in the three dimensional planes, uh, some on like the angles between the planes. And then one that's like completely different than the others, that's one bow tie on the Y coordinate and then a donut shape. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, seeing pictures of these in my, my like, yeah. chem, chem textbooks and being like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. And then there's one all the way on, And then there's the F orbitals beyond that. And that's where you start getting into the radioactive elements. And you don't even really draw the F orbitals in, in school because it you, you're getting into the realm of like computer modeling and stuff like that. So it's just not worth it. Um, <laughs> but that's sort of our model of the, the atom. That's how it all started. How we built our understanding of what the atom was. Then in, so in, as this is all going on, we're starting to get more of an understanding of quantum physics and the understanding that the, the physics that underpin how atoms form and the, that really, really small scale of the universe is different from the Newtonian classical physics that we sometimes talk about. So it was 1905, Einstein proposed his theory of the relationship of mass and energy, which we popularly know as... E equals mc squared. Which is energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Now, this was completely a theory at this point in time. He was good at those. Yes, he was. He was a theoretical <laughs> physicist. This was, this was, you know, that was his strength. And it took some of, that's what why Einstein is so um, sort of present in our modern day Hailed us discussion. Hailed such a genius. Exactly, because yeah. he described things that took 35, 50, 60 years to be proved in reality. He but was able he, to think like so differently from reality. And use math in a way that, yeah, proved things that had never been proven. Right, like same thing with Newton. Newton invented calculus. Calculus underpins all the math that we had been doing for centuries before that. But we, no one had ever been able to think so abstractly, but then also describe all of those mathematical proofs to show the underpinning relationship. Mm -hmm. Just peeling back the curtains of the mysteries of the universe. He was, I think he was trying to, he was trying to find proof of God's existence because he was like very religious yeah so, mm. so he was like oh let me understand god's bounty and this beautiful gift he's given us and all of this so, well it, you know, yeah a good thing for the uh 
science and arts, they're not so different. They actually have a lot to give each other. Well, it's true. Actually, a lot of the great science that came out of the Enlightenment was driven by that sort of understanding. And again, right, like that's the thing. If that's, you know, if you can describe calculus, which is sort of the perfect mathematics that underpin all mathematics, you could view that as like, well, is that what, you know, God in the universe is, is that, or what God created, if that's the route you want to take with it, that like, oh, well, it's that it's those inalienable mathematics that underpin everything that happens, right? Very cool. So it's very, very true. So what the theory of relativity or equals MC squared theory, the relationship between mass and energy basically postulates all these different possibilities that if you can convert mass directly into energy, you would produce like an insane amount of energy, uh, just like it would take an insane amount of energy to produce mass. Right. right. Like, yeah, produce mass, like create new stuff. Exactly. Right. And so, um, but it would take a long time for them to like prove this correct. So very quickly after the model of the atom, uh, after uh, the quantum model was brought forth, that it was in 1934 that fission was first sort of discovered. Again, it had kind of started to be proposed for many years before that, but it was like the specific experiments and papers that were published in, the, in 1934 that started to uh, started to really show that larger elements would break down into smaller elements. So uh, it's done by a, a gentleman by the name of Enrico Fermi. Uh, Fermi comes up in a few other um, major physics texts and things like that, chemistry texts. So he conducted some experiments showing that a neutron neutrons could split an, a bigger atom into many different kinds of atoms. So basically he took a very heavy element, uh, I think it was uranium-235 actually in those experiments, and he bombarded them with neutrons. And then he showed in his results that you ended up with elements that were much lighter than uranium. His original postulation was that if I fire neutrons at this element, I'm going to get a heavier element. Yeah, because they're going to combine. Exactly. But in the end, it showed that you actually can end up with smaller ones. So this is early proof of fission. Because fusion's a lot harder to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, exactly, <laughs> exactly, right? And we just didn't know that at the time. Yeah. So then same sort of thing. Similar experiments are repeated in 1938 by German scientists Otto Hahn and Fritz Strassmann. Such a good name. Yeah. And so they resulted in elements with about half the atomic mass of uranium. It's like beryllium and one other one that I always forget. Uh, and they sent their results to another scientist, Lise Mietner, who had had to flee to Copenhagen due to the Nazi uh, occupation of Germany. Well, the not like the Nazi totalitarian regime. Yeah. Um, the Nazi takeover. Yeah. So uh, she was sent their results and she was able to show that the light elements left over did not total the uranium's mass at the beginning of the experiment. Something was lost. Something was lost. And so she used that theory that had been originally postulated by Einstein to show that that missing mass was lost as energy that proved Einstein's work and it showed like what was happening in this experiment, this unexplained experimental outcome. Very cool. So everything starts to come together. Basically, it's this all is coming together for a period for basically this this entire decade from the 30s all the way basically to the end of the 50s. So those two decades. Um, this is almost all like any sort of leading scientist was working on. Like any, if you were a leading physicist, whether experimental or theoretical, like this is what you were working on. You were publishing on this, everything, everyone was talking about it. There were some years where people were not publishing on it, but we can get to that in a minute. Exactly. Yeah. And, and Sarah's very excited to talk about that. So I will try to wrap this up very quickly. <laughs> so 1939, again, we're now kind of in the heat of World War II. Bohr comes to America and he shares with Einstein this Hans Strassmann Mittner discovery. 
the papers that they had published, right? Because again, this is 1939, you know, information doesn't um, disseminate as quickly. And you've got kind of, you know, you don't have a lot of information coming out of a very particular area in Europe. Yeah. Um, and the stuff that does come out, you're like, I don't know how much I trust this. Exactly. So Bohr and Einstein then discussed the possibility that you could create a self-sustaining reaction and generate large amounts of energy via the splitting of atoms based on this outcome. And this Nuclear power. Mm -hmm. Now, the two timelines that we're talking about here start to get a bit muddled here. So some yeah. of these dates we're basically going to go back to. Uh, when we start talking about the next part. We're in the 40s now. Yeah. So, but in 1941, so Fermi and another associate of his, Sizzillard. Sillard. Zillard. It's yeah. Leo Sillard, uh, I think Zillard. is how you S-Z-I-L-A-R-D. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Zillard. Zillard. Like S-Z, right? Yeah. Zillard. I don't know. Zillard. I can't remember if he was Italian or not. Um, no. Because Fermi was. Uh, but so. He was not. He was Hungarian? No. Mm, anyway i'll tell you in the next podcast yeah. so uh so they so both of them together they suggested a design uh for a uranium chain reaction reactor so this is the that would use graphite and uranium create a cube-like frame of fissionable material so this is the first description of a nuclear reactor uh to generate power and in 1942 fermi and his group of scientists a group of scientists at the university of chicago decided to test this theory uh, in November of that same year, they begin construction underneath like a squat like, in the squash court underneath the athletic center at the <laughs> University of Chicago. Uh, they use control rack rods uh, constructed out of beryllium or sorry, cadmium. And they call this reactor the Chicago Pile One. Uh, I can't remember where pile comes from. I think it comes from literally like the pile of nuclear material. Um, <laughs> so creative. It was on the squash court. So, uh, and then by December 2nd, they perform a demonstration where they slowly remove the cadmium control rods, which allows more, so the control rods absorb the neutrons from the breakdown of larger fissile elements, and that prevents the reaction from running out of control. So by slowly removing them, they allow the reaction to start to become self-sustaining. Because basically with them fully inserted, nothing is happening because they're absorbing all the neutrons, preventing the chain reaction. You slowly remove them little by little, because at this point, they don't know what's going to take for it to become super critical essentially so removing the so the cadmium rod is in where they're like uranium or whatever is in yeah so you've got this big frame of uranium and carbon and okay. you've got these rods sticking in it okay so then you just slowly take out the rods and that allows the reaction to happen because the cadmium is no longer there acting like a little sponge exactly okay. and you remove them little by little so that you don't go you don't remove them all at once and then all of a sudden this reaction runs completely out of control and melts down you remove them little by little until you can measure that the reaction is self-sustaining so at 325 p.m on december 2nd 1942, the first nuclear reaction becomes self-sustaining. Very cool. And that's sort of the birth of the nuclear reactor. Obviously, there's, you know, 60 plus years of research after that. But, you know, unfortunately, nuclear energy took a big detour to a different area for not power, but something else. Thanks to a certain thing happening in certain countries in Europe. Yeah. Well, and ultimately and the world and, and ultimately really it was the, it was the Pacific theater. Yeah. And even early on in what you're going to talk about next, <laughs> it was, it was never proposed to be used in Europe. It was, or the, so we are in now yes. the Manhattan project. So dun, 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 dun. Yay. Uh, in 1939, so we have Leo Szilard. Zillard. Oh, Zill I am emphasizing the Z, but Szilard. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Uh, <laughs> figure it out for next time. Uh, Einstein and Edward Teller, another physicist, they wrote a letter to Roosevelt about the possibility that Germany had the knowledge and talent to develop an atomic weapon. And remember, they knew this because that's where the research had come from. It had come yeah. from Nazi Germany. 
Yeah. So a lot of people had left Nazi Germany. Uh, a lot of they scientists, yeah. run away. I think people in general. I think Leo was one of them. Yeah, he was in yep. the yep, territories. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, was he Polish? Well, see, like a lot of the different people that are being described here were either fleeing, yeah, like yeah. like Europe or Italy. They were yeah. fleeing the totalitarian regimes that formed the Axis powers. I think Zillard was Polish. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you have these these guys being like, "Hey, we know that Germany has all of this scientific talent. We know that yeah. we can, or it's now being." like theorized and proven that you can do this with elements and we think you'd be able to that make a bomb. That it produces energy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so mm -hmm. we think you'd be able to make a bomb out of this and it would be incredibly powerful. Um, so this this is the existential threat that the entire project is now, is going to be become, is going to be developed around. The existential threat that Germany could develop the bomb first. And if they do, it's game over because this bomb would be so powerful that wherever Germany wanted to drop it, they would basically... It would be such a strong deterrent that people wouldn't want to fight them, and it would be such a powerful weapon that anyone who tried to oppose them would not be able to. And remember, at this point in World War II, you know, the very outset of World War II, Germany had basically the world's most advanced military, even though they were not supposed, like they were. They weren't supposed to. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. They weren't supposed to have any military after the Versailles Treaty, but, or the Treaty of Versailles, I guess the more proper way to say that. But, so there was a lot of fear around the fact that Germany would continue its military superiority. Yes. Through something like this or any type of development. And as, you know, if you're a bit of a student of history, you know, you know that Hitler uh, and the Nazis invested a ton of time and energy into weapons development over the course of World War II to the point where they were trying to create some ridiculous stuff. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and war is a time where a lot of stuff gets created. It's this, true. World yep. War One is a really strong example of that one. Um, so, yeah. So these scientists got together. They wrote a letter uh, to Roosevelt. And Roosevelt, from this, uh, directed a research or directed that a research project should be initiated. Um, so from here, we go to 1941, where Roosevelt creates a group to research and begin developing a nuclear-powered weapon, a bomb. Right. So he's had, and previously, uh, he had a letter from Einstein explaining like the consequences of splitting the atom um, after Fermi escaped from Italy and all of that. You thought he was from Europe. I said Italy. I didn't say Fermi, I said oh, Leo. Oh, I thought you were talking about Fermi. No, I was that. talking well, about I was very, called Leo. I was very um, on <laughs> Dave, my high Davis did goalpost arms, so I had to stare at him and yep. wonder what he was talking Woo! about. What he was physic physicalizing. I um, was right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so Roosevelt had heard about the danger of this possibility from uh, Einstein. Uh, Oppenheimer, you know, Robert J. Oppenheimer... Uh, had also discussed the military applications of nuclear fission in 1939, and plutonium is also discovered in 1941. So the same year. So there's lots going on. And then in 1942, we get the Manhattan Engineering District developed, and this would become the Manhattan Project. So this is to fulfill Roosevelt's request. So for this, the Army Corps of Engineers was actually put in charge of the effort. Uh, and we have two people at the top. We have Oppenheimer becoming the scientific director, and we have General Leslie Groves placed in charge of the main thing. Uh, so this guy, he was like a real go-getter. He was like very like forward with everything. And he, but he loved secrecy and compartmentalization. So, because you need like a lot of secrecy for a project like this. People can't know what they're working on. It's wartime, there's spies everywhere. Um, and so compartmentalizing people being like, you know, you're working on this thing, but you have like, this is just a tiny part of the whole project, you know? 
So Groves was placed in charge. Um, prior to this, he had actually been in charge of numerous building projects for the military and some like very, very big ones with lots of manpower and lots of money. Things like camps, air bases, munition plants, hospitals, and even the Pentagon. Mm. So we've got a dude with a bit of clout here. Uh, and he knew a lot of leading industrial and construction firms, which is important in a moment. Uh, when, in 1943, construction started getting underway to really make this project a reality. So uh, Groves reached out to a bunch of these uh, U.S. corporations that he had, he knew of and he had ties to, things like uh, groups like Union Carbide, Tennessee Eastman, Free Oak Ridge, DuPont, and dozens of other companies to develop three primary sites. Um, now these, these three primary sites uh, employing from the construction through the people working on it, everything employed over 130,000 people total for this project. And the sites were Los Alamos, New, ne blah, Los Alamos, New Mexico, the one we all know, there's Oak Ridge in Tennessee and Hanford in Washington state. So Los Alamos, was the main scientific research facility. This is the lab that actually built the bombs. And this, uh, fun fact, had actually been a boys' ranch school that the government bought. What is a ranch school? I don't know. Like, a school where they learn about ranching and stuff? It was the 40s. I guess it was New Mexico. Yeah, yeah. lots of space. Just like a boarding school, in a sense, probably. Yeah. With, like, some field work element. I have no idea. Anyway, interesting. <laughs> I've, never, I've just never really heard that term, ranch school. I, I yeah. just accepted Te it. Teaching boys to be cowboys, I guess. <laughs> Should have looked into it. Uh, and then in Oak Ridge, this was where they had a complex that produced enriched uranium. So you need enriched uranium for the mm. nuclear material. And this is uranium-235, which is the radioactive isotope of yeah. uranium. Uranium is normally 238. Yes. Um, so in Oak Ridge, they have that. Uh, enriched uranium is the fuel for the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima. And then in Hanford, Washington, they built reactors and other huge facilities uh, that they used to make plutonium or to irradiate uh, plutonium and plutonium is the fuel that was used in the trinity test and in nagasaki the bomb in nagasaki uh, and in addition to this there were many universities engaged so we had uc berkeley this is where oppenheimer uh, was from uh, as davis mentioned the university of chicago there were five thousand people on reactor design uh, and this is where fermi was working and then columbia and others so we got lots of people involved three main sites huge project and this actually uh really demonstrates uh, an observation that niels bohr do we talked about he uh, made uh he observed that building an atomic bomb could never be done without turning the united states into one huge factory and that's true the country basically had to become this huge factory with these sites all over the place in order to make this project happen because there was so much knowledge that had to be or so much so much like science science that had to be teased out and material that had to be produced but how did they get that material? What mm -hmm. science and methods were they using in the 40s? Like, how'd they get enriched uranium? What do they use now, Davis? Today, they use centrifuges, which are like, uh, if you've ever been on one of those rides at the <laughs> amusement park where, you know, the thing spins around really fast and it pushes you against the wall, that's centrifugal force. Um, technically centripetal force, but whatever. Um, and so essentially you do that same thing. You can do it with lots of different substances. They do it with your blood sometimes when they're testing it. Um, and it spins around really fast. And the heavier elements or the parts within it will go to the bottom. And the lighter parts come will like come out later. And it will like stratify. And you do lots of cool stuff that way. So nowadays they just spin uranium around really, really, really fast. All the uranium-238 goes to the bottom. You scrape off the 235 and you're away to the races. Which sounds like a, an efficient method. Or a more efficient method than in the 40s, 
centrifuges were not that good. <laughs> they had not developed. <laughs> that really well. surprises me. But then, yeah, I guess like that's like eighty years ago. Like, yeah, you know. <laughs> uh, so instead of using a uh, centrifugation, is that, what I would, is that the way I'd write that? I say don't that word? know how you. It's, 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 instead of using Centri- centrifugal force. Yes. Instead of that, they had to use gaseous diffusion. So this process uses a lot more energy than centrifuges and is now basically obsolete. Um, so this was done by uh, a guy named Piles. It's kind of how you say it. It's a weird way to spell it. Um, and Klaus Fuchs, Klaus Fuchs in England. Uh, and so what they do with this, they take uranium hexafluoride gas. So uranium, right? It's just in a gas with six fluoride. Fluorines? Fluorides? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So... It's a gas. Well, so it's uranium is in the center, and then it's bonded to six fluoride atoms right. along it. Uh, so you got this, this. So you take this gas, and you put it in a cylinder. And the cylinder had a, has a piston at one end and a membrane at the other. Very much like if you have an AeroPress coffee maker. So Like a French press, you mean? No, an AeroPress. So an AeroPress is like a tube, and you have a filter that you put at the bottom, like a single filter. Mm-hmm. And you put a scoop of coffee in it, and then you add water, and then you put basically like a plunger on top, and you slowly depress the plunger, and it pushes the coffee out the bottom. Okay. I have one. I okay. just recently started using it again. Huh. Uh, <laughs> so this acts very much like this. So you have a, a cylinder, you put the gas in, it has a membrane at one end, so a thing with a bunch of holes, and then a piston on the other. So the piston forces the gas through the membrane, which... Uh, the slightly lighter uranium-235 particles can get through faster compared to the 238 ones. So on the other side then of the membrane, you create an enriched sample. So you have more 235 than 238. Because 238 is still going to get through, but you have more 235. Mm-hmm. So then what you do is you take this new sample, of enri- this enriched sample, and you put it in a new cylinder, and you push it through a membrane, and you get an even more enriched sample. And you just have to do this a whole bunch of times to finally get your enriched gas. Uh, but uranium hexafluoride is a really dangerous gas. It's incredibly corrosive. So, uh, because it's such a dangerous gas, they had to come up with all of these, like, new techniques and new ways to even get to where they wanted to go. In order to even use this product, they had to come up with a bunch of things. So, super corrosive, so they eventually discovered they needed nickel coating on their pipes so that the gas wouldn't corrode all the pipes and escape. Because you don't want this gas to escape no, no, very bad gas to escape. Um, so, you know, you got to like seal the pipes and then make sure they're super sealed. But uh, a lot of people, this was like grease and grease type products were used to seal the gas, but you couldn't because it would impact the actual process itself. Uh, so they had to seal the pipes with a new material of Teflon. And Teflon was also brand new. It was discovered in 1938 by DuPont. We got them in it again. Um, so they were using Teflon. You know, super high-grade military stuff gets all the new cool tech. Yeah, it's true. Because they're trying to build other new cool tech. Don't look into Teflon too much. Don't know. That's, that's a horror story. Ooh. We'll talk about that another time. Yeah, I had to stop myself looking down that rabbit yeah. hole. I was like, yeah, let me double, like, let me see when DuPont made this. And then it was a whole, I was it's, like, there's that's a lot a, of sources It's such here. a rabbit hole. <laughs> there's a good documentary on it, but I can't remember the name. We'll we'll say that for another time. Yeah. Uh, and then moving on from our uranium that they're working on, we have plutonium. Like we said, this was used in two of the bombs. Uh, So plutonium is what they sometimes call a synthetic element. It does occur naturally, but it's in extremely trace amounts. So there's very, 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 very little of it that's produced naturally. Usually it is produced by inert uranium-235 capturing neutrons, which will then decay into plutonium-239. Inert-238 uranium. 
What did I say? Two, you said 235, which yeah. is the radioactive isotope. Yeah, okay. No big deal. Just a little little fact check there. Yes, important on our science podcast. So yeah, so uh, if you take inert uranium-238 and it captures neutrons, it will decay into plutonium-239. And the benefits of this and why they also use plutonium in addition to the uranium-235 is because plutonium was a different element, you could actually extract it from uranium by regular chemical means. Things that were way easier than gaseous diffusion. That laborious process that I just described with all the pistons. Um, but again, plutonium is really dangerous to work with. Um, it's It spontaneously fissions, which really constrains bomb design. So you, it, if it's going to spontaneously fission, you're going to like lose your energy or it's going to be unstable. It's very toxic, very the similar effects to heavy metal poisoning. Uh, so it's a dangerous thing to just work with in any capacity. It's an inefficient process. Only one atom in 10,000 gets transmuted in these reactors. So that's not a very good return rate. And it's super radioactive. This produced a lot of radioactive waste that's still with us today. I think in our, um, when we talked about nuclear reactors and stuff, and I was like, what about the waste? I think this is the stuff that I heard more about. Mm. More than the uranium stuff. Yeah. I just didn't know it was the plutonium. And we don't, are there plutonium reactors today or no? Because they were like, this is so dangerous. I'm pretty sure there are not. Also just because it's so rare right. as to not really be... Uh, I think there are probably some early designs of plutonium reactors. But yeah, typically I think a lot of the waste came from the refinement of plutonium for early nuclear weapons. Yeah. So we have all of that going on. There's lots of new discoveries and there's tons and tons of scientists. Some of who, like obviously the most senior scientists knew what they were working on. And then... Most people involved in the project, like I've heard people kind of theorize that like 90 to 95% of people who worked on the Manhattan Project did not know what the end goal or the real, yeah, like the real goal of it was, but like the top scientists, the super top military officials, and then like the young scientists who were brought in like a little later, like 43, 44, uh, I guess more 44, they were, they were able to figure out like what they were working on based on okay, the military came and got us and asked us to work on a nuclear project and it was probably a bomb. Uh, so yeah, so we're going through all of that. Then we get to the spring of 1945. Leo Szilard, <laughs> who we've spoken about, was one of the guys who said like, we might want to look into this because Germany might be doing it. Turned out Germany wasn't really spending a lot of time on this. They had a lot of other things on their plate and they didn't actually spend a ton of time mm -hmm. on the bomb, not nearly what the Allies spent on it. Um, but Szilard started to feel uh, that he was opposed to the use of the bomb. Uh, so there was uh, the Frank report that started circulating uh, that he and I guess Frank wrote. Um, and they crafted a petition that uh, said like, like, let's not use the bomb at all to let's do a demonstration for the Japanese so that they know what they're in for. Um, because at this point, the war in Europe is wrapping up. Um, the Allies have made tons of progress. But the war in the Pacific is raging on. And the war mm -hmm. in the Pacific was horrific. It was a really, really horrifying war. Um, it needed to end, but they were like, let's just show them what this weapon is that we have, as opposed to using it on them. And then they'll see, and they'll basically come to their senses and surrender. Um, uh, but the, so they, there was this report and this petition, but there was lots and lots of opposition. So there were like 65 to 100 people at Los Alamos and Oak Ridge, Oak Ridge who signed various drafts of this. But there was tons of opposition, even by people like Oppenheimer and Fermi, who said, uh, we see no acceptable alternative to direct military use. So there was this really this idea that once the military started on this project, it was going to be used. 
And this was also an incredibly expensive project. I believe the estimate was like two billion U.S. dollars back in for in the forties, mm. which today is way more. Yeah. Right. So it was very expensive. There was lots of of money and time and energy put into developing this. Um, and Groves, the person in charge of the Manhattan Project, thought that this petition itself even would undermine the project and its secrecy. So it had to go through like a bunch of like other people before it could get up the chain, who eventually it did get to Groves, though. In August 45, Groves sent it to the Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. But he was in Europe with the president, so it only got to his secretary, and Stimson's secretary filed it as secret, and it never went anywhere else. Truman and Stimson never saw it, which is just like, I don't know. You get into, like, the military, and this is that, like, secrecy, right? And the compartmentalization. It's, uh, it really had an impact. Yeah, there's a number of different things that play into this, too, because um, obviously Roosevelt was the one that started the project for the bomb. Roosevelt yeah. was a rare three-term president because he was a wartime president. Right. And uh, Roosevelt died in office, and his vice president, Truman, took over in his final year, and then Truman basically had to oversee the end of the war. Uh, and Truman, by all accounts, was not as um, not as strong of a leader as Roosevelt was. And I mean, that's like an insanely high bar to meet. Yeah, big, big shoes to fill. But, but Truman was, um, by some accounts, the party patsy. He was the vice president that the Democratic Party made Roosevelt run with. Oh. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, because uh, Roosevelt actually had a different vice president in both of his first terms, uh, who he wanted to run with him in his third term. It, it, it's a different story. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but to say the president never saw this petition. Yeah, and it's just that Truman was basically desperate to get out of the war at that point as well. So there's a lot of conversation around, well, what if Roosevelt had been president? president? Would he still have used the bomb? But it's kind of all a moot point because Roosevelt was the one that ordered its creation. So Yeah. Um, so then we get to July 16th, 1945. So this is just before that uh, report was sent to Groves. Um, the, we have the first ever nuclear detonation taking place at... How do I say Almogordo. that? Almogordo. Almogordo. Uh, yeah. Like, Almogordo? So Al yeah. Almogordo. Yeah. Okay. That, uh, it, New Mexico. <laughs> uh, basically, big site with not a lot around um, for the Trinity test. This is what we call the Trinity test today. This was the plutonium bomb. This was the first like real test to see if it worked. And it did. This is those pictures of the mushroom cloud in the desert. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very, very famous footage of this, uh, this, I guess, experiment. Yeah. And they were, they were testing it. They were super far away. I think they were 20 miles away. Yeah. Something like that. that yeah. Um, but it was a, not just a proof of concept. It, it worked, right? It was huge. Uh, and then, we get to July 21st, 1945, and Truman orders the bomb to be used. So on the ground, very briefly, they were looking at that the U.S. had gone through and the Allies and started taking back a lot of the islands that the Japanese had uh, taken over, had colonized, um, and or captured, that they had captured. So the U.S. went and captured them back, and they were looking at a mainland invasion of Japan. And this would have had a... People theorize it would have had an astronomical... Uh, loss of life. I think I've heard two to three times the amount of people would be lost in the landing compared to D-Day, yeah. which we know is no. one of the worst, uh, worst losses of the of World. One War of the II. single largest military yes. operations ever conducted. Yeah. So uh, you need even bigger and even more losses no. um, to do a land invasion of Japan. Yeah, and you know, not to get too political about it or anything, but like at this point in the war, yeah, like Sarah said, they've been fighting through this chain of islands yeah. and they've basically seen that the Japanese were prepared to fight to the very last man for every inch of territory. 
And you have the kamikaze, kamikaze pilot starting yes. in the late, in, uh, the late in the mid-40s. Yeah, late 1940s, four, yeah. Yeah, so it's it's pretty bad. It's pretty dire. Yeah. Um, I don't want to make a, a judgment on should the bomb have been used or not. I think that's not a thing we can really say, but mm-hmm. there was going to be a huge loss of life either way. Yeah. Because Imperial Japan was not going to surrender. Yeah, and, and well, one of the big things, right, was that the Allies were demanding Japan's unconditional surrender. Right. So they were saying that they would have to cede all territory that they had captured, and they were basically looking to, well, one, occupy Japan, demilitarize Japan, and then also, like, unseat the emperor, who was basically like a god figure yeah. uh, in Japanese culture. And so the unconditional part was basically a non-starter. The Japanese were never going to surrender under those terms. Uh, unless something drastic was going to be done. Uh, interestingly, like I've watched a number of documentaries on both the subject specifically of the bomb use and the history of World War II. Yeah. And it's interesting because like one of the things that comes out about the use of the bomb is like, yeah, like for, you know, us millennials and, you know, people of a generation that never grew up, like we didn't even really grow up with the specter of like nuclear war from the Cold War. Yeah. Uh, in the same way that like some of our cousins or parents might have. But you know, we view the use of the bomb in pretty abhorrent terms because we know about how devastating a weapon it is, the loss of life, but there's... Uh, and the loss of civilian life. Exactly, yeah. right? You're dropping it on a civilian center. These aren't combatants, all this sorts of stuff. It's not a precision weapon, it, all these types of things. Yeah. Versus like, but apparently there's a lot of people who, a lot of veterans from that area, from the era, sorry, who um, basically said like a lot of the Marines that were fighting in the Pacific that were like, well, if the bomb, if Truman hadn't used the bomb, I would be dead because I would have been in the landing force. So it's a much, much, much more complex um, issue than should it have been used or shouldn't it have been used. There's, you know, and we just, we live in the history that we live in. We, you know, there's not really a ton of sense to argue about, you know, not having used it. Yeah. Because it's just not the reality we live in. <laughs> yeah, so this, we're here now. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want a really good documentary on what the conditions were like in the Pacific, I recommend The Pacific. Uh, it's a 10-part series, 10, I think, by HBO. It's like the sister series to Band of Brothers. Yeah, so it's a bit of a dramatization. Um, yeah. But there are some really good, like, documentaries, too, and stuff like that. And, um, it, and it draws, like, the people in Pacific, just like the people in Band of Brothers, they're real people. Yes, like, they're yeah, not fictionalized. real stories. And, mm-hmm. and a number of the people that you follow, like Leckie and... Um, sledge they they wrote their own memoirs mm. and everything actually yeah. listen to sledges it's good too it's just it's a different vibe it's not as you know dramatized yeah for but anyway uh so we have in on july 21st 1945 truman orders the bomb to be used so they wait for the right like air conditions and the right flight paths and all of this and i think they had was it five or seven cities as a possibility because they were like they were important cities um yeah. And then in on August 6th, Little Boy is detonated over Hiroshima. And this has uh, 90 to 100,000, I wrote, it was like up to 160,000 or something, where uh, people are killed instantly. And then you have all of the followed effects. Uh, this was a uranium bomb, so different than the Trinity bomb. And then on August 9th, uh, because there was still no Japanese surrender, Fat Man was detonated over Nagasaki. This was a plutonium bomb. And then on September 2nd, Japan surrendered. And that's like the official surrender date. Like that's the date that like papers were signed. So really the surrender was in, like, it it seems weird to have like this big month gap, but the the surrender was essentially happening. It just takes a long time for the, that level of bureaucracy to happen. Yeah. So yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. And everything. And like literally for the emperor to sit and sign, you know, the unconditional surrender. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. Anything else you want to add about the history there? Um... We know, like, a lot of the scientists, after they saw the use of it, 
it was obviously like, yeah oppenheimer's famous quote i have become death destroyer of worlds yeah. um a lot of a lot of scientists were pretty um shocked i think they were i don't horrified. know shocked they were horrified they were horrified yeah. by by the power that they had unleashed really yeah um and it's this is a classic you know genie in the bottle scenario once the genie's out of the bottle there's nothing you can do about it and as soon as the world saw this weapon used um it it, well, it changed the world, right? I mean, yeah. World War II had already completely changed the world, but it it completely um, underpins the next, really, the next 85 years. Um, and it really altered the relationship of the public with science because they started seeing um, science as a real, like, dangerous possibility. Because there was already, mm-hmm. like, some mistrust. You know, you go, like, uh, the mistrust of knowledge and the mistrust of science. You have Faust, Faustus. It's a play where a guy, uh, like a demon comes to him and he sells his soul for unlimited knowledge. Oh, okay. I was yeah. like, I was like, what does Faust have to do with science? He sells yeah. his soul to Beelzebub, like. Yeah. <laughs> um, but for knowledge, right? So mm. th- it's, that's yeah. sort of like the archetype of this. And then you get into like, Ibsen has a play about, I studied this for my master, so <laughs> a bit more knowledge on this. Um, but yeah, so like Ibsen has plays about this where like the, the townsfolk really stopped trusting this doctor. And there's a lot of, evidence through this that like you know people aren't super sure about scientists and then in the after the the bomb was dropped you have brecht looking at uh, back at his galileo play he actually rewrote part of it talking about like the responsibility scientists oh have. yeah that's right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. in brecht's play life of galileo he rewrote it in 1945 to uh kind of talk about the like the this effect and the the effect that the effect that happens when science is too far removed from the public because the whole thing about Galileo was he was, he had all these amazing discoveries and then he was punished by the church and eventually like recanted because he was being tortured, uh, which meant that all of his discoveries were like pushed and told that they weren't like, they weren't real. And then science had to happen in secret away from the public. Um, so Brecht has a line in this, in his rewrite that's like talking about scientists. And if you pull away and you work in the shadows and people can't see you one day, your, your cry of achievement will be echoed as a universal cry of horror. So we really start seeing this change and this shift of the relationship of the scientist to the everyday person and the split from of science from everyday life. Mm. And it's a drastic shift from like the turn of the century in the early 1900s where like scientists, you know, like Einstein and Tesla used to do these demonstrations in university halls and oh, yeah. hundreds of people would gather and, you know, the world's fairs yeah. would happen and people were super, super, the, the average person was super fascinated with science and because it was constantly changing their everyday life for the better. And then, yeah, this drastic change. One, after World War One, the advent of mechanized warfare, World War Two, And the gases in World War One. Well, and in World War Two, Yeah. Um, you know, and just, yeah, so for... 30, 40 years, you've just seen the perversion of science for the use of war. And and you've just a world torn apart by massive conflict. Yeah. So. And any of the science being developed during the war, they they couldn't publish on it because it was a secret. Mm-hmm. And you don't want your enemies getting your information. So that's like when Davis said, all these people were publishing papers all the time. Not for a few years. For a few years during like the main development of, of the nuclear of this nuclear development, uh, they were not publishing papers. So it was a weird gap in Mm. history. So, um, I mean, obviously kind of the rest is history, as they say, took, you know, as soon as the uh, the nuclear weapon was used, lots of other countries started uh, racing to develop their own uh, nuclear weapons, in particular, uh, the Soviets and the USSR, uh, because they viewed it as, you know, a huge challenge to their, their entire existence, potentially. 
the Cold War was basically already beginning. As soon as World War One or Two ended, sorry, the Cold War basically began. You know, now we get to kind of into the modern status quo, the modern order, where, you know, there are dozens of countries around the world with nuclear armaments. There's obviously huge pressure to prevent new countries from uh, building nuclear weapons. Yeah. Um, and whenever a country starts gathering the materials to make uh, nuclear weapons or mm -hmm. all that people get real nervous well and even right this is and this is the problem right is that like we've started you know pretty quickly right away we moved away from creating nuclear weapons and and started you know using uh nuclear fission to generate power yeah but the problem is is that for certain you know developing countries that wanted to pursue nuclear power it looks you know this the apparatus that you use to generate the fuel for your nuclear reactor to generate power for your city are the exact same tools that you can use to generate you know, the material for a bomb. So that's why, you know, um, the Iran nuclear deal in the last two decades has been such a big deal is because, you know, after the um, revolution in Iran, that, you know, there was great fear that they would develop a nuclear weapon and use it against their enemies in the region. And but they also wanted to develop nuclear power. And so it was this whole, you know, it's this big toss up between like, you know, do we allow them to go ahead and build these technologies because it will improve the lives of the people that live there but it has you know risks and things like that so that's why there's been so much um diplomacy back and forth between you know especially iran and the u.s in the last couple decades yeah. um and then obviously you live kind of we live in today's world with you know where nuclear deterrence is a big a big thing well that was really more in the cold war and again this idea of like mutually assured destruction where yeah no one wants to see these weapons used because everybody has them now. They're attached to rockets that can do things that neither of the bombs... And as well, you know, the bomb, the, the nuke that exists today is not the nuke that was dropped on Japan. Oh, yeah. Like, it is orders of magnitude more powerful and more dangerous. And often we call it, like, the hydrogen bomb in yeah. today's vernacular. Because yeah. you're splitting the hydrogen atom rather than the, you know, a heavy element atom in a chain reaction. And by splitting the uh, hydrogen atom like that, you generate just massive, massive amounts of power comparatively. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately, there's, you know, it's a pretty grim topic. There's no way to really talk about um, nuclear fission or the, or the Manhattan Project really without talking about like the reality that nuclear weapons created yeah, and the, the, and the, the fear. Yeah, the legacy that they've yeah. left, the, the fear and paranoia that they created in the in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But so going from our history, our, our legacy of the bomb is also the legacy of atomic power. And that brings <laughs> us back to fusion. Right. So this is like, again, you know, this is now the next stage in the understanding of this same science. Like fission and fusion are two sides of the same coin. And without the work that had been done to understand fission and indeed the work even to create the bomb. Yep. We wouldn't know enough about how atoms work and to even start to approach the ability to fuse elements on Earth. So one of the big reasons why fusion is so advantageous to fission, there's a, there's a myriad of reasons. Big one that'll come to most people's mind, nuclear waste, yeah. right? Uh, fission creates often radioactive materials that need to be stored for extremely long periods of time, like geological timescale periods, like, <laughs> like hundreds of thousands of years, yeah. hundreds of years before they are safe to be reintroduced into the environment. So basically a lot of these things will never be safe to be reintroduced into the environment and the way that they're stored reflects that. Uh, the other element of, uh, 
element of this is that the elements are not super easy to get. There's only so much uranium on the earth. There's only, and only a small percentage of that uranium is fissile uranium. And then generating things in synchrotrons and other things like that takes a lot of time, energy, and effort. Like so, we were talking about with plutonium, you know, one in 10,000. Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, the material is limited. Uh, and, you know, and, and again, then, you know, there's a, there's a history of nuclear accidents, same sort of problem, yeah. right? Uh, so safety has always been a massive, massive, massive concern. Um, obviously ever since Chernobyl, I mean, ever since the bomb was dropped, but then like Chernobyl in particular, the greatest nuclear disaster, uh, in history. And what, how many years ago was Fukushima now? Uh, Fukushima was just about a decade ago. I think it was yeah. 2011 when the tsunami hit. So, um, same sort of thing, right? Yeah. Um, just, just kind of refreshing all the fears. It, exactly. So there's been tons and tons and tons of fears around nuclear power. Fission, fusion, however, represents basically a clean energy alternative. I mean, I would argue, um, and this would be a very controversial opinion, not controversial, but this would be something up for contention among different thought, uh, groups of thought. Um, but I view nuclear, like nuclear power in general as a green technology compared to the burning of fossil fuels in particular, uh, especially modern nuclear fission, because these reactors are completely different from, you know, those early reactors, like Three Mile Island and stuff like that. Um, that's why we included it in our alternate energies. Exactly. Uh, but fusion is this true, like fusion is the next generation energy solution that would essentially, if, if you could invent fusion tomorrow, you would solve all of the world's energy problems in one blow. Because it produces so much energy. And it's essentially potentially limitless, right? Yeah. Because again, we're now talking about rather than taking an extremely rare earth metal, uranium or something similar to it, and to, and then taking a small percentage of that and breaking it apart in a sort of in a non-renewable fashion, you are starting from the, the, the singular most populous element in the universe. Now you need to use isotopes of it, as I'll talk about, but like, so it's not the most common forms of it. But there's still a lot more of it. Exactly. There's a lot more hydrogen <laughs> on Earth and in the universe than there is uh, uranium. Yes. Uh, and it, and it, the hydrogen is way more accessible. It's a lot easier to get. Uh, we drink some of it every day because you can get it from water. Hydrolysis. Uh, um, H2O, baby. Yeah. Well, that's often how <laughs> a lot of uh, hydrogen is generated for certain applications as you split water. Um, like in space. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so... <laughs> Anyway, so, you know, and it's clean. The um, the output of your fusion reaction is helium, which is an inert gas, which actually we need more of anyway because we're slowly running out of the helium stores Because it's the so light, it can just escape Earth's gravity. It just yeah. drifts away. Exactly. When I found um, that out and I was like, what? No. Yeah. It's amazing. This is one of the reasons, too, why there's a lot of interest in going back to the moon because it's uh, postulated that there's a number of helium-3 deposits on the moon, oh. which are which would be important to, like, certain rocketry applications, all this sort of stuff. I digress. Um, the moon. Uh, but yeah, so it's basically this, this per and it's this perfectly clean alternative. All of the um, outputs are inert. You know, I, I think you could make the argument that there's probably an element of danger, but it's probably a lot safer as well because you're not using these radioactive materials. Um, and, you know, and it's just, you know, it would generate so, so, so much power and it would be self-sustaining. It would just, once you started it, it would feed itself and you just keep feeding it fuel and it will keep fusing and producing energy. Uh, so that's what's so, what's, what's such a powerful um, aspect to the development of fusion. So people have been working on fusion basically for the last 60 years or so. 
Um, it's taken a long time to even just build, to like model how it might work, build the systems that could contain it, and then start testing it essentially. Yeah. Um, so I, where should we start with Fusion? Um, I'm at a bit of a loss in the direction of which to go. Like, do we want to talk about like the reactor design, Fusion as a pro, like Earth Fusion as a process? Uh, I have something about like mm. the most successful recent experiment and exactly kind of how they were doing it. That might help to elucidate. Sure, we can, we can go there. Yep. Okay, so in uh, August 2021, there was an experiment done that we'll get into uh, in a second, some of the details of it. But so the process that it was using was called inertial confinement fusion. So this involves creating something like a tiny star. You know, like we said, you need all that heat and pressure. So for this inertial confinement fusion, a capsule of deuterium and tritium? Tritium. Tritium uh, was put in a holo... Holron, which is H-O-H-L-R-A-U-M. Very interesting spelling. Uh, this is just a hollow gold chamber about the size of a pencil eraser. So the Holron was blasted with 192 high-powered laser beams that would convert into x-rays in the Holron. My head wants to say it different so bad. Uh, so they would convert to x-rays and the, the x-rays implode the fuel capsule, which heats and compresses it to conditions comparable to those in the center of a star talked about where fusion happens so this is temperatures in excess of 100 million degrees celsius and pressures greater than 1 billion earth atmospheres and this turns the fuel capsule into a tiny blob of plasma plasma being the fourth state of energy the highest energy state you know solid liquid gas plasma what the sun is made out of quickly to describe what a plasma is it's a state of matter where the electrons can freely move between the nuclei of whatever element is is made into the plasma. Oh. So in the sun, it's a plasma of hydrogen and helium, and it basically means that the electrons of the hydrogen can move freely among all of the hydrogens that are in the plasma state. Oh. Yeah. This is what people theorize if we were going to make a lightsaber, it would have to be plasma mm. as well. Just side note. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, so then you have the uh, Holorum. It implodes, it creates these star-like conditions, and the fuels will fuse into heavier elements in there. And this whole process takes a few billionths of a second, which is wild. So uh, in August of this past year, at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, they used this process to test it out, and it created uh, a yield of 1.3 megajoules, which is like 10 quadrillion watts of power. A, me a mega, mega as a prefix, much like kilo or things like that, mega is 10 to the power of 6. Whoa. So kilo is 10 to the power of 3, 1,000. Mega is 10 to the power of 6. So lots. Just in case you're interested in the math. Uh, yeah. <laughs> lots and lots and lots. The person who requested this is absolutely interested <laughs> in the math. <laughs> um, yeah, so they did this. It was a very significant step towards fusion ignition. Um, the yield was roughly two-thirds, more than two-thirds, of the energy required to power the laser. So it's not quite meeting the threshold for what they call fusion ignition, but it's close. It was much closer than before. So this was uh, an eight-fold increase from experiments earlier or done earlier in 2021 and a 25% greater yield than experiments done in 2018. So we're making some progress. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this underpins like the big barrier that we're facing right now with fusion. Uh, and, you know, some pundits of fusion will say like, we're so close, it could happen anytime in the next decade. Other people will say like, we're probably two, three decades away from actual fusion energy generation. Yeah. But the big barrier right now is it takes so much energy to heat the component elements into a plasma 
and allow this reaction to become partially self-sustaining that you can't, you're not generating as much energy as you're contributing to the reaction right now. So for some uh, definitions of fusion ignition, it's the break-even point, the yeah. point at which you generate just that tiny bit more power or at least the exact equal amount of power that it costs to power the reaction. The other thing about this Livermore experiment uh, is that it only lasted 100 trillionths of a second. Yeah. So this is like not even the blink of an eye. This is the blink of an eye of the blink of an eye of a blink of an eye, right? <laughs> like um, it is so small an amount of time. So yes, 1.3 megajoules in that amount of time is a lot, but it's not that much power because again, like we talked about, joule has a seconds kind of component to it, yeah. right? And for fusion to really be a usable source, it has to be that self-sustaining, right? It has yeah. to get to that stage and, and it hasn't really gotten there yet mm -hmm. and with this whole like you have to get out more energy than you put in you can think of it like if you're starting a business you have to get out more money than you get in in order to make a profit right yep. otherwise you're like you're not there yet you don't have a successful business model it's the same thing here same very similar concept um but there was an experiment done recently so it was published the published paper came out just at the beginning of this year oh, okay I believe. So I, I, think, I can't remember when the ex experiment was done exactly. It's not really super important, but it was published. This is kind of the what uh, drew us to to um, cover this topic. Yes. Was that on, I think it was February 8th, was a lot of the press releases went out. Okay. Yeah. And so this uh, had, it was another experiment of this, and it was able to generate energy over five seconds. So it was only 59 megajoules, but that's still a lot. Uh, and it was over five seconds, and this is a much longer time period than, oh, what, 100 trillionths of a second? Yeah. You know. Well, significantly more. Yeah. Yeah. This is a really long blink. This is a yeah. long, weird blink. So this uh, is 11, <laughs> 11 megawatts of power, um, and that converts like kilowatt hours or whatever, which your energy bill is in. But thanks to the BBC uh, <laughs> and their... Uh, their um, pensions. U UK, uh, yeah, their pensions for tea and their UK-centered <laughs> audience. Uh, that they broke that down, which I actually thought this was really handy, was that it's uh, enough power to boil roughly 60 kettles of water. It was, it helped me. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, it is. Oh, yeah, these are just tea. numbers, right? Yeah. Like, they're kind of hard to imagine. But, like, yeah, 60 kettles of water, like, you know, it's not a lot of energy, but it's nothing to sniff at in terms of, like, where you're coming from, right? Where you have 1.3 megajoules of energy, which is, you know, roughly 1 60th, but over way less period of time. So could you even boil one kettle of water i don't know um interestingly why it's sort of important like I, I, the boil boiling aspect actually plays another element in the level of this is that wow. like most energy generation at this point in time we don't know of a way other outside of solar energy we don't really know of a way to convert certain types of energy like directly into electricity so the fusion burning fuel and fusing stuff together it's all of this energy is being lost as heat and we don't really have a very good way to capture heat as electricity or convert heat to electricity. Yeah, this is a problem a... that everything, all the energies are running into, right? Exactly. That's why everything so, just boils water. <laughs> exactly. So this is one of these really funny things about fusion is like all this energy and effort to like just make a fusion reaction happen. But then ultimately all you're going to do with it at this stage of technology is heat water to steam to turn turbines yeah. to produce electricity. <laughs> so it's, it's like... It's basically just like you're swapping out your internal combustion engine with like a plasma engine. Um, obviously, it's way more complicated than that. And ultimately, we can't even start to feasibly think about those next generation energy technologies unless we figure out fusion because there's no point, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's 
an argument that you should be able to capture directly from the plasma. Again, plasma where you, the, the electrons are now essentially free flowing, that you could, and that the electrons that are emitted from the fusion process, the energy that's given to them, could be just directly siphoned out of the of the um, reaction into like electrical use. But again, this is like on top of a next generation technology, a next generation technology that you can't even start to work on until you figure this out basically. Yeah, which is like with like all all scientific breakthroughs at this point basically, right? Like you need so much the science and technology has to come together in in such a an integrated way. Like it's really interdisciplinary. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's even we didn't get into this, but the way that the uh, uranium bombs was designed and built, you could not do the same for plutonium bombs because mm -hmm. it was so much more like fissile, right? Yeah. So you had to build them in different ways. And so in order to make this bomb, you not only had to figure out fission and like really figure out fission and how to keep it stable, but you had to figure out the casing of it and like, okay, there's this- And your like, mathematical modeling had yeah. to be very good and yeah. And like, how do I keep this stuff from going off before I want it to, which is a huge problem with nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. Um, or becoming inert before I use it because it's constantly reacting and then yeah. it's just a dud. Right. Yeah. yeah. And how do I get it to go off when I want it to? Is it going to yeah. go up and like when it's first dropped, which would not be like, so there's all these things that have to tie together in order to get to this next development step. So like we look at this and we're like, this is really cool. Like we're close to fusion. And then you're like, okay, but how do you capture the energy? Like what's your next step? You know? So to, uh, to talk a little bit more about like the underlying, like, um, construction of a fusion reactor oh, and sure. like where we're starting with it. So the process, like we talked about requires plasma, right? Uh, you're heating this up to an extreme degree and then allowing that fusion reaction to happen in that plasma. There is, uh, so the process, the plasma is made out of deuterium and tritium, like we talked about. So those are two heavy isotopes of hydrogen. So deuterium being with uh, one neutron and one proton, normally it's just one proton. So it's a little bit heavier. And then tritium, which is actually radioactive, oh. is the next um, isotope of hydrogen where there are now two neutrons and one proton. Nucleus is getting crowded, man. It Well, exactly, right? <laughs> because literally like you, one, you couldn't add another neutron because it would just, it wouldn't would break, break apart basically um, right away. But, Four is a crowd. Well, exactly. Like, but literally, you add one more proton, and it's a new element. Yeah. Then you're an, then you're just an ion of helium, yeah. right? So that's why. So basically, you use deuterium and tritium because it gets you closer to that atomic accounting that you need to form helium. Oh, rather rather than having to have like raw hydrogen, you know, it's it's like a step stool. You're just starting at a point closer to the energy thresholds you need to reach. Uh, rather than starting from like all the way at the bottom with the most inert thing you could start with basically. Yeah, you're reducing the the variables and the places where things could go wrong, right? Because if you have four hydrogens that you're trying to bring together, there's like, you're like, you have more opportunities for stuff to not work compared to if you have two. More so it's just that you have to, you, you have to produce so much more energy to allow it to happen, okay. right? Like essentially you're saying like, ultimately the product that you need to make has two neutrons and two protons. If you start with something that has, you know, if you start with something that has no neutrons, two <laughs> hydrogen atoms, you know, you have to generate those, you have to generate those neutrons by, yeah, right, by reacting some of those hydrogen together and then generate more neutrons and then make sure, and you're right, like, you know, you're going to lose neutrons and things are going to go wrong and stuff like that. A lot of that. extra steps. But it's a lot, yeah, exactly. So you're starting <laughs> from, you know, zero rather than this is sort of staying like 
you know, if you were climbing a building rather than starting at the entryway, you're starting at like floor 10 of a 20 story building kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Um, because you're now starting, well, you've got some of the neutrons you need. So as soon as you heat it into plasma and things start flowing around pretty freely and things are hitting each other, you're, you've got the conditions to create a helium much quicker than with your raw material for much less energy investment, essentially. Um, these are being done in a special type of reactor. So that most recent experiment was done at the UK-based uh, JET Laboratory, uh, which is a joint European Taurus. That's what JET stands for. And it's a actually, it's a multinational program. Uh, like a lot of uh, mm -hmm. really advanced scientific research has to be. Yeah. And the JET is essentially the experimental, the small version of another reactor that that's being built in France called the ITER. Uh, and that is going to be the largest fusion reactor ever built. And it's supposed to start testing in 2025. And ultimately they believe that like, I was like reading a little bit of the, on the ITER website, they believe that that will hopefully be the fusion reactor that will be the first one to generate power because oh. it's on a much larger scale. So yeah. that's the other thing that constrains some of the oh, current yeah. fusion experiments is just the reactors aren't actually big enough to ever hit this break even point. It's the same with uh, Bohr and his saying you have to turn the whole of U.S. into a factory in order to make atomic weapons. Exactly. Like, yeah. This is a massive undertaking that's been going on for, for many decades at this point. Uh, so the the type of reactor that they're using is called a, a tokamak reactor. Uh, and this actually comes from a, a like a, uh, I believe it's Russian, comes from a Russian like acronym for toroidal chamber with magnetic coils. Tokamak. Okay. Yeah. This is where it comes from. <laughs> I'll, I'll believe so you. <laughs> a toroidal shape is like, you ever seen like a smoke ring or someone blow like a ring underwater or anything like yeah. that? That's a toroidal shape, that kind okay. of donut shape. Uh, so it that spins, right? In, in that particular example, yes, like a smoke ring, it spins and that's why it maintains its shape and it can go for such a further distance than yeah. like a blown stream of air. But uh, it's mostly just that donut shape. Okay. It's not really the spinning necessarily. Um, the Sometimes we'll refer to those like a smoke ring or a water ring like that that's blown with breath as a toroidal vortex. Right. And vortex okay. describing the spin. That's yeah. where I've heard it. Yeah. So toroidal is this donut shape, like literally a donut, a sphere with a hole in it. Imagine if we called donuts toroidals. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> what, would, what would Timbits be then? Um... Yeah, you think about that. About um, so, and basically what it is, is it's this special chamber. Uh, they've tried all, lots of different materials uh, for the walls, the different effects. And then uh, some of them, like the one experiment that Sarah pointed out, you're using like inertial control to keep the few, to keep the, uh, the plasma contained in this shape so that it doesn't touch the sides. Because basically it's like the game of operation. If it touches the sides, it like melts down yeah. pretty much instantly. Yeah. So it's very, very important. And this is one of the big things that they're... Um, really kind of um, hammering their brains around is like the shape that you hold the plasma in will have an effect on the power generation. Yeah. So it's trying to find this like ideal shape for your, so, cause some of these are using magnets to hold the plasma into a particular shape and keep it away from the walls. Yeah. Um, and that inertial mm -hmm. in the other one, they use gold, right? Very mm -hmm. inert yeah. element. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, so that's really, you know, what this, the shape of these reactors is and how they work. Um, some of them use like even high frequency microwaves to help with heating or magnetic compression to start heating up. They, they pump the hydrogen isotopes in as a gas and then they heat them up until they become a plasma. Uh, and the theory is, is that yes, it, it costs all this energy to start, but once you reach a point of self-sustaining, it you know, that the barrier, which is this barrier that everyone's trying to break, it would just go forever like a star. 
right? Well, I mean, stars don't go forever, but as long as you provided it fuel, it would, yeah. this reaction would just continue and it would produce energy potentially forever. And that's why stars stop because they run out of fuel. Yeah. Right? Interesting thing about ITER. So ITER is both an acronym and apparently means something. Now this comes from two different sources. So I have my doubts, but uh, <laughs> one source I looked at was that it's literally, so I think that the, one of the sources I looked at, it says it's the International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor, I-T-E-R. But apparently, according to the ITER site, ITER is also a Latin word that means the way. Maybe it's both. Well, I think it, it yeah. it's a classic one of those examples where it yeah. seems like they may have put the acronym to fit a word to just achieve a whole sort of press release sort of thing. But Makes yeah. sense. If you're naming something, it's going to be an acronym forever. You might as well have the acronym yeah. mean something too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So either uh, the WAY or International Thermonuclear Experimental Reactor. Uh, it's the world's largest tokamak that's ever been constructed, and it's based in southern France. Very yeah. cool. So, mm. yeah. So, you were not some, yeah. Uh, just to close this out, I think what a toroidal, if a, if a donut was called oh, a toroidal, yes. <laughs> I've been thinking about it. So, Timbits are just a specific brand. They're actually That's donut true. holes. That's true. They right? are donut holes. That so would be the conventional like, name. So, it would just be like a toroidal hole or like a toroidal gap, which feels weird and I don't like it toroidal gap a toroidal plug because that's like what the hole is you got to plug the hole so whatever the timbit is is i mean it doesn't even like really make sense plug the least <laughs> exactly well i was trying to figure out like the worst possible name yeah yeah like a toroidal like, a toroidal would already be a dumb name for a donut i would i think it's cool all right you can open your what own custom nut? donut shop like it's not yes it's made out of dough but it's not a nut Okay, well, I don't know like the knot, I don't know the history of the donut. Well, it may come from that you had to knot the bread right before you had those special things that like drop the batter out. Could have been that you. But had that's to not twist how it. you make a donut. What about a? You see a cruller? It's got those little twists on it. That's not how you, you make, make a donut now. You ever made a bagel? No. So you make a bagel. But a donut, like, don't you have the thing and then you like make a hole in it? No, 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 no. no, no, no. A donut today, like. If you go to like a Krispy Kreme or whatever, it's like a special thing. You know how they have those things at pancake breakfast? Where or like an like, extruder. Yeah, it's like an extruder, but with like a special hole in the middle. So it extrudes that okay, shape when it drops it in the oil. That's not what how people make them by hand. No, that's what I'm saying. Like you ever made a bagel by hand? You have to twist the ends together. You make a long, like skinny rope of dough. And then you join the ends and you twist them. I'm just going off of when I've seen people make donuts on baking shows. And I don't think that they make them that way, but I think they usually make the jelly-filled donuts. Anyway. Well, there's also a difference, you... too, between, like, a real donut that's fried and, like, a cake donut, like, you actually get at Tim's where they're baking it. Because then you would just, yeah, you would just, like, roll the dough out and then cut the center out. But that's not tr what a donut really is. I think this is saying that Davis and I need to do one on the science of baking. Well, there's a lot of science. There's a lot of science but, in baking. If you anyway. want to hear the science of baking, let us know. Yeah. But for now, fission, fusion history and stuff yes yeah do you have I, anything else no i just yeah. think like like the like you know i i am personally very fascinated by the fusion stuff i think it's like like either it's the way it's the way forward <laughs> it's um, like so sci-fi but now but not yet well exactly and i think just like, like if you if we could crack fusion it would again like i said earlier like it would instantly solve like almost all of all of the world's energy problems yeah um and it would be it would be the breakthrough of the century, for sure, for sure. Again, unfortunately, in the same way that the bomb was, 
right? Like the nuclear bomb was a, was a scientific breakthrough, like our understand understanding fission and what we could do with it. As, as unfortunate as the first application being one of the most horrific applications of technology ever unleashed on the world, like what world, like, you know, it's, we just don't know what world we live in without it. Or like, you know, it's just one of those um, double-edged swords a little bit. It happens a lot with uh, war. There's always yep. these like incredible scientific and technological advancements because there's finally uh, the money and the time being poured into it. Yeah. But yeah. Not so for the best purposes. No, exactly. So, you know, <laughs> Well, it would be really, it'll be really interesting to see every, every, I find with fusion, um, there'll be long droughts of fusion news. And then every couple years, there'll be this big, you know, three or four different labs will publish within the same stretch of time about how they've all broken various records and stuff. So it'll be interesting to see, like, are we at a watershed moment right now where with some of these things that were published at the beginning of the year, at the end of 2021 are we're, you know, starting to hit this kind of critical mass where things are going to start happening very quickly, or are we still kind of in this period of like every couple of years, we're going to see like a small breakthrough as we get closer and closer to potentially generating power. Like it has a lot to do with the technology, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like in the, uh, think of the Olympics podcast just talking about swimming and like the advancements in swimming. Mm -hmm. And every time there was a major like, uh, increase in swimming speed, it was linked to a technology change of like vents in the pool and swimwear and all of that yeah. stuff. So I think, yeah, as they're building this new reactor and everything, we're going to start seeing, we might see clusters once that gets a little closer. Yeah, I would say probably like if we, if we saw nuclear fusion generate power in the next decade or before the end of this decade, which is very close together, eight years versus 10 years, like that would be... Um, Fast. beyond significant yeah, yeah it would be incredibly <laughs> fast it would be faster than even like probably the the most generous of predictions yeah. um and because there's just no telling there's there's arguments that we are within that for that time period away from it happening all the way to it, it'll be another it, it may never happen it may not yeah. even be possible right so quite the time scale um but yeah i think that's all i really wanted to say about it uh i don't think do you have anything else you want to add no i think we Went through a lot of stuff there. Yeah, I know. I know we got a little off topic in some spots, but we got uh, a little distracted by the by the graphite base, by graphite and the base chemistry. But I think it all helps to explain this stuff that can really be difficult to grasp. You know. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I think that takes us to to through the topic today. Uh, I think next we will probably talk about uh, alcohol. Shots. Shots. Uh, shots. Yeah. Shots. Coming up to St. Patrick's Day. And yeah, so that'll hopefully come out in the next couple of weeks and we'll see you guys all then. Yeah, if you, uh, you want to follow us and learn oh, more yes. about our mm -hmm. stuff, follow us on Twitter at Temporary Expert, just one. There's also an Instagram now, Temporary Experts, both of us now uh, on Instagram. You can also find me at Third Sock from the Sun on Instagram and Facebook. I always make sure to post about our new shows. So Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, we got you covered. Come find us and let us know if there are any topics you want us to cover. And if you would be so kind and you really like the show, please consider leaving us uh, a rating or a review on whatever source you listen to us on, because it will really help us hack those algorithms and find new listeners. Awesome. Well, for all of us here at Temporary Experts, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and we have been your Temporary, Temporary Experts. Experts. Thanks for listening. Watch yourself.